So how are we doing? Listen, I, we had so much fun hanging out with the students this week. I got to be a little, a little part of Rush Camp, and I just want to say, I know Pastor Brian's been around this morning. He's at our, our West location today. If he were here, he would say this. I just want us all to take a moment and say thank you to Pastor Todd Hampton, to Pastor Brad Chandler, to Christy Meldrum, to Stephanie Dunlap, our whole student ministry team for putting together a fabulous week. Thank you guys very, very much. We've just, got, we've just got the best in the world. We believe that. And so very thankful for Brad and, and Todd. And, and uh, just, just what a great job. Some of the students keep telling me they're tired. I'm just fine. I, I don't know. But, you know, they were there a day or two longer than me. And, and I think I probably slept better than, than most of them did. Um, you know, before we get into our, our subject, or as we get into it, I know a little bit about what we're talking about this morning. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, love does not envy or, or, or boast. And some of the fun I had this week with the students was to share moments in my wife and I's journey. And, and some of you know, if you've been around for a little bit, you've heard our story before. We've actually known each other since middle school, and, uh, and we started dating in high school. And we dated for a little over a year or so. And, and then there was a period where Angela evidently, we've never really talked all about it, but evidently was in deep sin, got away from the Lord because she broke up with me. And that's really the only explanation that I have. And, uh, and so I'm not sure what all she was into, but, you know, we'll, we'll uncover that later. But the, um, uh, <laughs> I have to tone it down a little in this service. She's in this one, the last one. But anyway, but I don't know if you have any experience with this, with, with you know, the person that you're dating or now that you're, you're married to. And it's like there were always kind of those people hovering around the edges just waiting, just waiting in case anything were to go wrong so that they could swoop in. And uh, I had a friend of mine named Ben who was one of those people, and he has this little thread in our story because, like, during, the, the, during high school, when it was time to ask the gals out to the junior-senior deal, I heard Ben was going to ask Angela, and that was the thing that gave me the courage to swoop in about three minutes ahead of him and ask her first. And uh, so that worked out pretty well for me. But we, um, we dated in my first car, which was a 72 Super Beetle. Uh, banana yellow, and um, I, I love that car. I didn't know I was joining the VW Colt when I bought the car, but that, that's kind of how that worked out. And, uh, but the interesting thing about a, a Super Beetle in the late 90s is that nothing made in 1972 in banana yellow is still considered super in the late 90s. And uh, Ben was, they're a great family. Ben's still, he, he's a great guy, and, and if we see each other, we're, we're still friends, and, and uh, he's, he's doing great. But his his dad was a a very prominent businessman in our hometown and, and owned his own businesses. So um, when it came time for, for Ben to get a car, they bought Ben his own car. So the firstborn fair-haired child got a nice car. And, the, uh, and so, just kidding. But here's what he got him. He got him this, like, brand-new black Camaro. And, like, the Camaros had been away for a while, and they were coming back and the body style was changing and everybody was seeing these cars on the road. And then Ben has this car. And during this period when Angela was in sin and we're broken up, the, um, Ben asked, uh, <laughs> Ben asked Angela on a date and I found out about it through some friends. And, uh, Ben and I were still friends. We we're still kind of in the same circle of friends all together. And, and so I heard that he was taking her to a concert and, um, I just called him and acted like I didn't know what was going on. Hey, what are you doing? And uh, he said, hey, I'm, I'm doing fine. And I said, hey, what are you doing this weekend? I'm making this as awkward as possible. And um, he said, well, you know, I, I, I thought maybe I should tell you. I don't know. I was going to tell you. He was going to tell me later after the fact. But he's like, 
you know, I know you and Angela dated for a long time and, and, and you know, know your story, but I'm, I'm taking her out this weekend. I'm taking her to this concert. I went, really? Great. And I said, here's what I'd like to do. Um, there's this, there, was, there were a couple gals hovering around the edges too, all right? Can we just get to that for just a second? And I just said, <laughs> I said, listen, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call so-and-so, our friend Kelly, and I, and I said, why don't, why don't we all go together and double date? And you can drive. And um, what everybody didn't realize then, I, I think Angela, who's very smart about this stuff, was probably onto it. What Ben didn't realize is that this was less of a double date and more of a chaperoning. And uh, because I was sitting in the back seat, and Kelly, bless her heart, she's, she's a friend, but we never had really any interest in each other at all. And I think she knew, probably knew what I was up to. And I'm really just kind of watching the whole time, like making sure there's no hands grazing in the middle of the car or anything like that. And, you know, when it came to the concert, typically, you know, the girls sit next to each other and, and the guys, you know, on the outside and you go to the movie or whatever it is. I made sure that I was, you know, Ben was there, then Angela, then I was here. And then, and then Kelly was, a, this poor gal was on the other side. But I know a little about, a little bit about envy. And that's our subject matter today. We're in this series called Crazy Love. We kicked this off last week. And, and if you miss a Sunday for vacation or whatever you're doing during the summertime, I want to encourage you to jump onto our website and, and, to, and to stay current on this series. I think there's going to be a lot of great teaching in here. And Pastor Brian last week particularly went through some, some great teaching on, on this subject and, and explained to us a little bit why the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the people at Corinth. There are a lot of things that this fledgling church plant were allowing to, to get out of hand, and they needed some coaching. One of the things that I believe Brian mentioned last week was they had turned communion or the Lord's table, they had turned it into a bit of a feast, a bit of a, a party, and uh, different than what Jesus had instructed them to do. And it, it's not difficult to see why they took such a leap, because they were coming out of, of Jewish culture, and in Jewish culture in the Old Testament, God gives us lots of feasts, and so there's lots of parties, there's lots of things to celebrate, but Jesus had given us specific instructions on how to remember him, and how to remember his death, and, and, and what he had done for us, and they had taken all of that, and they had kind of blown it out of the water, and history tells us they had turned it into at least a two-day feast, where instead of just the little wafer and, and the juice, they were getting drunk on too much wine and, and, having, and having too much food. They were also getting out of order in, in their worship services, and, and they, were, they were just kind of blending into their culture, and they were not coming out from their culture, particularly if you read First Corinthians, particularly sexually. Whatever the culture said was sexually permissible, which was just about everything in Corinth, they were practicing as well. And when Paul gets to the portion of his letter that we know as the love chapter, chapter 13, he has just finished up, finished up some instruction on spiritual gifts. And Pastor Brian led, read last week, as we do every week from the English Standard Version, but as we're studying this same passage together throughout the summer, I thought we'd have a little fun this morning and read from a paraphrase uh, called The Message that author Eugene Peterson puts together. So here is the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13 from The Message. It says this. It says, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have a faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. 
Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have, and I love this one so much. Love doesn't strut. We get in now to 1 Corinthians 13 from the ESV. It says this, Love is patient and kind, as we learned about last week. And today we focus on this next phrase, Love does not envy or boast. And he would go on to say it is not arrogant. The love that we are practicing with each other should cause us to retrain what would otherwise be natural inclinations. In fact, there are only a couple of positive love is statements in this passage, and they kind of, they they bookend it. They're on the front and, and the back. Everything else in this love chapter is a statement on what love is not. It's as if the Apostle Paul is saying, I know that people all around you act a certain way. I know that everyone does it. But the love that comes from God is actually supposed to look different, and it's supposed to cause Christ followers to look different, and it's supposed to mark our lives. Jesus himself had said this in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Author Donald Miller tells the story of a Hindu woman who was referred to as a modern-day mother to all in the faith. Now, interesting thing about this lady is that she doesn't offer any theological instruction. She's not a leadership coach. She's not a personal coach. She doesn't give magical business advice. She basically sits around like a lot of Hindus do, and and she she chants to Krishna all day, and, and others show up, and they chant with her. One of the interesting things about her is that she allows other people to come to her gatherings and to chant, to pray, whatever they're going to do, to their, to their own God as well. So she's, she's very accepting, and she may very well have the largest following in the Hindu world. So what's her secret? I mean, she doesn't really do any teaching. She doesn't really say anything you know, profound or quote or anything like that. Just what's her secret, and why do so many people follow her? Well, here's her deal. She gives hugs. She's a professional hugger. In fact, her handlers have have said, and this was true in 2010, that they believed that she had hugged more than 30 million people. Now, I'm looking for the antibacterial wipes at this point, but this is is what she has done that that is working for her. And about this incredible phenomenon, Christian author Donald Miller, he says this. He says, I want to make a little hypothetical wager here. He says, I bet that somebody with unsound doctrine will gain a greater following if they are loving than somebody with sound doctrine who is unloving, bitter, and angry. Now, the reverse is also true. That if somebody has sound doctrine and love, they will attract more people too. But the point is this. People go to where they are loved and are repelled from that system that does not create love. You know, oddly enough, the, the greatest thing that, that keeps people away from Christ is, is other Christians. But the reverse is also true, isn't it? The greatest thing that draws people to Christ are fully devoted followers of His who treat one another and others differently by how they love one another. Jesus Himself said, truly, they will know us by our love. So how does the Apostle Paul instruct us to live differently in this passage? Well, he says this. He says, love does not 
envy. It's another word for, for jealous. Love does not desire for itself. The definition would read, the possessions of or control over other people. In the Old Testament, when you're talking about jealousy or, or envy, the word picture that goes along with it is, is to redden, like literally to, to redden in the face or, or to, to glow. It's the idea of just whatever's going on around you and you're, you're so upset about it or you actually you want it so bad that you're just, you're, just getting, you're just getting all worked up, you're getting hot. The actual meaning of the word, the Greek word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 means to boil. He's saying it's the idea of wanting something so badly that you cannot stand it. And all of us have these, these moments in our lives. All of us have these moments where we're wanting things so badly, where, where we want something else. I mean, everybody does it. That's just, that, is this really something that we need to try to, to get away from? Well, just to prevent you from thinking that this is just okay and we can sweep this kind of feeling and these kinds of thoughts under the rug, I, I want to point out that envy shows up in some very bad lists in the New Testament. And I, I'm not going to read all of them. There's three or four just really just kind of descriptions of envy and some other things that go with it. There's some in Galatians. But the one that the Apostle Paul used in Romans 1, here's the list that envy heads up. So it's on par with these things. Murder. Strife. Deceit. Maliciousness. Gossip. Slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That one's on there. You can say amen later, parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And envy is on the top of the list. In Proverbs 27, verse 4, the writer asks, Who can stand before envy? It was envy that caused Cain to kill Abel. It was it was envy that caused Joseph's brothers to turn on him and to sell him into slavery in Egypt. And in the book of Esther, it was the envy of Mordecai that caused Haman to try to deceive the king into killing off the Jewish people. And ultimately, it was the envy of his large following that Jesus had gathered that caused the Jewish leaders to put Jesus on the cross. James chapter 3 tells us that envy actually leads to every evil work. This is something that we have to, if we have this in our lives, we have to identify day by day and pull it out. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I know everybody else loves this way. I know everybody else goes like this, but if you're going to be marked as a Christ follower, if you're going to look different, you have absolutely got to do everything you can whenever you feel this cropping up to remove it, to take it out. Envy causes us to reject God's authority in our lives and envy ultimately says I can do it better there's some moments in the scriptures where the New Testament actually gives commentary to some things that that happen in the old and and one of those happens in Acts chapter 7 and it's about the story of Moses and most of us know a good bit of Moses story you've either read it in the Bible or you've seen the movie and so you know you're picturing Charlton Heston or somebody right now and and we know that Moses' life is divided up into these 40-year segments. In the first 40 years of his life, he was, he was raised as a prince in Egypt. And then sometime around the age of 40, he learns that he's Hebrew. And so in Exodus chapter 2, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster ruling over a Hebrew slave in a very aggressive way. And he's, 
he's pushing him too far and he's pushing him to the point of death. And so Moses takes things into his own hands and he actually goes after the taskmaster, the Egyptian, and he kills him. And then the following day, he, he runs across a couple of other Hebrew slaves just talking amongst each other, arguing amongst each other. Actually, one of them was a Miami Heat fan, one was a Boston Celtic fan, and they're just they're arguing together about how things could have gone, referees, things like that. And they, Moses tries to break it up. And their response to Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15 is this. One of them says to him, he answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And of course, there's this moment where Moses thought his, the killing that he'd done was in secret, but actually everybody knows about it. But what else was so shocking about this moment for Moses that caused him to flee into the desert for another period of 40 years? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, while he's preaching there in front of a large group of of Jewish leaders, he gives us a little insight into what Moses was thinking. He says this, talking about Moses. He supposed that his brethren, the other Hebrews, understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand Moses, right there at the age of 40, before he went into the wilderness, before he met God at a burning bush, he already had a dream of saving his people before he was even called to it. And in that moment of thinking he could control things himself, of of seeing what the control of others, the power of others, and thinking he could take things into his own hands because he was good enough for that. He had a dream of saving his people. But in that moment, when he took it into his own hands, his dream was frustrated and he gave up. He had to flee into the wilderness and become a shepherd. And one commentator says about this, his dream of redeeming Israel died in the wilderness. And only after the dream was dead and Moses was no longer trying to achieve it at all, could God call him. Only then, long after the pride and envy were gone, was Moses ready to be a tool in the hand of God. He spent the last 40 years of his life fulfilling the dream that had been birthed in him 40 years before, but not before. God yanked all the envy out and set himself up as the authority of Moses' life. Stories told about a carpenter who hires a young apprentice. And the apprentice was eager to get busy with his trade of of building houses and he was so eager that he, he wasn't taking all the time he needed to learn. He was skipping steps and he was just he just wanted to go out and just get started. He was he, he just and he said to his to his boss, to his teacher, he said, I'm ready to go, I'm going out, I'm building a house. The carpenter said, Fine. If you're so certain of yourself, go ahead and build. And halfway through the first construction project that the apprentice had taken on, the first house that he was trying to build a lopsided frame that he had built himself collapsed. The young apprentice comes back to his teacher with his his shoulders slumped. He says, I guess I'm not a carpenter. Can't build anything. His teacher, the carpenter, looked at him and said, Excellent. Now you are ready to learn how to build. You see, envy causes us to get ahead of ourselves. Envy causes us to focus all of our attention on our own lives and on our own selfish desires. And that is, if we're all honest, that is the natural pull of all of our lives. But God's crazy love, when practiced, 
works against these natural knee-jerk tendencies and puts others first and works to find out what their needs and desires are and marks our life. A few years ago, a couple years ago, Angela and I took the time to to sit down with a a marriage and and family coach and and get some advice on how our marriage could continue to grow and, and, and get better and and the coach looked at us, and she said something that has always stayed with me. And, and to be honest, it's, it's not something that I've, I've mastered, because as hard as it, as it is to admit it, I have to say it's unnatural. I think it's unnatural for all of us. Coach looked me dead in the eyes, and referring to my wife, she said this. She said, you have to become a student of this woman. You have to let go of your own desires. You have to let go of your, your own needs. You have to let go of your own pers- of the personal attention that you give to yourself. And you have to become a student of this woman. See, envy doesn't do that. But crazy God-given love is willing to become a student of your spice, your spouse. It's willing to become, just seeing who's still with me, it's willing to become a student of your kids willing to become a student of your friends and then graduates with flying colors when you've learned to put all of that into practice. Another thing that envy does is envy limits the work of God. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling story after story, parable after parable about the kingdom of God. He's painting this incredible picture. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, he, he moves on back to his hometown to Nazareth. And it says this, when he had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Not that Judas, by the way. And are not all his sisters with us? And then, when, did the, when then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. It's interesting how they responded to him. First of all, they said, Is this, is this Mary's son? And it's a... It's a little bit of a, of a put-down because they're not talking about his dad, which you normally refer to a son by his dad. It's, it's also most likely evidence that Joseph is already dead at this point, but they don't refer to him at all. They, they just re- refer to her. They should have called him Jesus, son of, of Joseph, but they didn't do that. And, and the Bible says they, were, they took offense at him. And if you look at the words that are used there that Matthew's using, literally they were, they were stumbling or they were becoming ensnared. It's another way of referring of them falling into sin. And think of all the things that Jesus had done in this, in this region. He had, he had healed a, a paralytic man. He had, he had driven out demons. He had, he had healed a man with leprosy. He's, he's done all of these things already. He had calmed a storm. Certainly, the stories about him are spreading throughout this region. His stories he's telling, the stories about the kingdom of God and all of that, he has to put on hold in his hometown because of their envy, because they could not believe that the boy that had grown up there with them was speaking this way, was, 
was doing these things. And Jesus really, in an ultimate example of agape love, love for no reason at all. And because he refused in that moment to boast about himself, because he refused in that moment to to make a point, to brag about himself, and to try to get their praise, to try to get their acceptance, because of all that, he didn't perform miracles in front of them, he didn't do any of that. Because he wasn't going to force his love on their lives. He refused to force them to love him in that moment. And their envy limited the work of God in his hometown. On the flip side, as God loves, to love as God loves, unlocks the work of God in our lives because God is love. And when we love the way he does, we experience him more on a daily basis. The other thing the Apostle Paul says that love is not in 1 Corinthians 13, He says, love does not boast. And I love how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. He says, love doesn't strut. The word itself is translated in other parts of Scripture as being puffed up. It's using language in such a way to try to force others to have a high opinion of you. A story is told in in Michigan, in the Grand Rapids Press, of an owner of a small foreign car. Now catch the details. You're in Michigan, and the person has a foreign car, so they're lucky to be alive. And... They've begun to irritate, this person's begun to irritate his friends by bragging incessantly about his gas mileage by that foreign car that was probably made in Alabama, but that's beside the part. So they decided on a way to get some humor out of his just tireless boasting as well as try to bring it to an end. So every day, this group of guys, one of them would sneak into the parking lot where the man kept his car and they'd pour a few extra gallons of gas into the tank. So this man who is bragging about having not 40 miles per gallon, not 50 miles per gallon, he is, he is bragging about phenomenal gas mileage that's going like over 90 miles per gallon. And the pranksters are absolutely loving what's happening as they listen to him try to explain his truthfulness. He's just so sure of this. And ultimately, when you, are, when you are bragging, when you're boastful, everyone else can see right through you. Ultimately, when you're boastful, you make a mockery of yourself and you make a mockery of God. You may not even see it. You're so puffed up. In the Corinthian church, there were people who were using the gift of tongues as something to boast about. In boasting, they were making it clear that, that the way they were using their gift was for personal edification. They were doing it for just mere display and what the Apostle Paul is saying and he he says in other parts of Corinthians in other words we all know you're faking this we all know you're doing this for yourself we all know that you're you're doing it to try to make yourself look good and he says here in 1 Corinthians 13 love doesn't do that and the problem with any spiritual gift or talent used in a boastful way is that it becomes a mockery trying to tell the boss how great you are rather than let your, your actions do the talking and, and it's not a way to get their promotion. Rather, let others promote you. In Proverbs 25, verse 4, it says, As clouds and wind without rain, so is he who boasts of gifts deceptively. It's natural for us to want to talk ourselves up. Every, everyone, everyone does it. It's, it's one of those things, again, that, that it's so easy to, to blend into the culture this way. 
but living a lifestyle of crazy love that actually sets the Christ follower apart should cause us to live differently. There's a saying that I found just in in study over the last couple weeks about how to live differently, how to live opposite from an envious, boastful life that, that rabbis and teachers have applied specifically to a story about Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. It's really, it's a fascinating story where where three visitors come to, to visit Abraham. And, and when he sees them coming, I mean, I'm sure people pass by all the time, but when Abraham sees these three visitors, he gets all excited, and immediately he jumps up and he offers to, to give them some refreshment. He offers to, to give, them a little, give them a little water and give them a little snack so that they can continue on their journey. But even though that's what he says, offering a little water and offering a little snack, he, he does way more than just pulling out the chips and salsa, the cheese and crackers. He goes way beyond it. Genesis 18, he, he turns to his wife, Sarah, and he asks her to knead about 50 pounds of their finest flour into bread. He Next, he sends someone out to his, to his herd, and he asks them to choose one of his best calves and, and finds a servant to prepare it. He has fresh curds and, and milk brought in. And, and the thing about what was once a snack is that it would have taken most of the day to prepare this incredible feast. The bread would need to rise. The meat would need to roast for hours. And by the time they were done with the description here in Genesis 18, there would have been enough food for 50 people or more. Abraham rolled out the red carpet for his visitors. He looked to their needs. He wanted to bless them. And we come to find out later on in this chapter that one of those visitors appears to be an Old Testament appearance of Jesus himself. And looking at how Abraham responded to these visitors, one rabbi says it this way. He says, Abraham said little, but did much. Say little, but do much. Truly the cure for living a a life that is envious and boastful, a life that wants what others have, a life that puffs itself up, that that rejects the authorities of others and tries to go it alone, a a life that brags on itself to the point of of looking foolish as a life lived for others that says little and does much. And unfortunately, in churches, we can have just the opposite reputation, can't we? Of saying way too much and doing way too little. But as we seek to practice crazy love, in a way that draws people to our amazing Savior. May we have lives that attract not only because of what we say and what we do, but because we show love by saying little and doing much. Love does not envy, does not boast. Those things are easy to do. They're how everyone else lives. But those of us who are trying daily, all of us together, who are trying to grow as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, who want to live in such a way that it points people to the Savior, need to practice crazy love. Love that becomes a student of those we care about and says little and does much. Let's pray together. As we look throughout this series, we're going to find time and time again where the descriptions that Paul gives are really, we're going to see it in our culture, there there are ways that everyone else responds. But he's calling us out specifically over and over again to respond differently, to go against the knee-jerk reactions of everyone else, 
and to show the evidence of God by responding with crazy love. Listen, there's going to be lots of moments we have to stop ourselves. There's going to be lots of moments where we have to pull out the weeds of the old way of showing love in order to continue to move forward and show crazy love. This morning I'd say to everyone in this room, God has shown crazy love for you by sending his one and only son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now like over three dozen of our students did earlier this week. If you're here in this moment and you want to put your faith and trust in Christ, I just challenge you to pray in your own words, God. Thank you for showing crazy love for me. Thank you for putting me first by sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I put my faith and trust in that sacrifice, in his blood and in his love that's covered me, in his resurrection that allows me to live differently every single day. If you're here today and you put your faith and trust in him, would you please allow us to come alongside of you? Go to the help center, the two tables out there in the atrium. Immediately following the service, let us know how we can get you connected, help you take your next steps as a follower of Jesus Christ. For the rest of us in here this morning, let us just take a minute and pause and analyze our love. Am I loving in such a way that it draws people to Christ, or am I repelling others? Have I let envy and jealousy what others have, what others do, take root in my life? Am I making myself and Jesus a mockery by the way I boast and talk about myself? If any of that describes any of us today, maybe take a moment and pull the weeds and ask God to help us grow. God, help us to grow in our crazy love for you. Help us to grow in our crazy love for others. Help us to understand more day by day what it means to show love like that. And God, as we do, may we come out from among them. May we be set apart. May we live holy as you are holy and demonstrate your love to others. God, thank you that while we were your enemies, while we were away from you, while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. God, you have always shown us crazy love. It's who you are. It's your nature because you are love. Help us to love like this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we go today, just a couple of things. This is the last day to register a child for surge camp. We go from 460 middle school and high school students at Rush to over 900 so far elementary kids at Surge. It's just what we do. And, uh, and so our sports and arts camp is coming up. If you haven't registered your child yet, um, I'm not sure what's wrong with you, uh, but the, uh, no, I'm just kidding, um, sort of. But your elementary kid needs to be registered today if they want to have a T-shirt that matches the sport they're doing and allows us to get name tags ready, to get groups assigned, to do all those things. I know many of you are here for the Surge volunteer meeting is going to happen immediately after this service. Next Sunday, we're going to do something fun. I, I shared with the students in the message this week, this subject comes up way too often in my life, but there are two words that bring me 
uh, a lot of joy, and those words are waffle and house. And, uh, and so, so next week for Father's Day, uh, we are bringing Waffle House to you. Uh, Waffle House will actually be here catering next week for Dad. And uh, did you know they catered? I didn't either, but I'm so excited. And, um, and so, listen, next week, you saw the, uh, the, hopefully you saw the banner outside in the atrium for the Dad Pad. And so... Um, we're making waffles for dad and not necessarily for all of you, so sorry. But the, um, it's going to be just a great day. I think, they're, I think Waffle House is giving away some mugs. We're gonna, those mugs are awesome, by the way. We're doing some, some giveaways in the service and, and things like that. We're going to make a day just really celebrating and honoring dad and, and really encouraging. Guys, this is a great opportunity for you to grab another friend who's a dad who maybe it's not been real easy for you to invite him to church and, and just... Tell him you're going to Waffle House and bring him to church. He'll figure it out when he gets here. And, um, and uh, maybe take him to the real thing afterwards to make it right. But the real thing will be here next week. So bring friends. It's going to be a great day. Uh, bring dad. And uh, we're, we're really looking forward to that. Um, Brian talked last week, right before we go. This is, this is crucial. Uh, I, right before, uh, last week, Brian talked about our budget and that we had missed it by just this much, and um, and so we missed our budget this last fiscal year by uh, $700,000, and um, you know what? God has been so good to us. We have spent less than we brought in, but when we've missed a target by that much, we've had to make some, some difficult choices, some tough decisions, and Brian is going to be back here next week to talk uh, in more specifics about those decisions, but you are all going to get a letter, uh, assuming you're in our database, which more than 8,000 of you are. Um, we are all going to get a letter tomorrow, probably. It went out Thursday. Uh, tomorrow or the next day. It's going to explain some of the tough choices that, that we've had to make. And, and uh, there's a role for all of you in it to help us with uh, the transition that we're going to be going through as a church through, through this next season. And it's a good season. It's, all, it's, it's good things, but it's, it, there's, there are some tough issues in, involved. But we are committed to uh, making a budget that uh, is focused on what we've brought in in the previous fiscal year. And then as God allows for growth and life change, which he certainly has over the last year, and we blow that out of the water, well, then we'll just blow other people out of the water with our generosity. That's our goal as a church. And so that's what we're in this for. And so um, Brian will be here uh, next week to explain that more. He's at our West location this morning talking to them about some things, and then he'll be back here to explain it in, in person next week. So be on the lookout for that letter. Be in prayer for that. And uh, we greatly, uh, greatly appreciate you and, and, and all that you do. So we're looking forward to a great summer. Don't forget the dad pad next week, serves the week after that. I hope that you all will go out and practice crazy love every day this week. We'll talk to you later. Love you. Bye.